Good day and welcome. I'm Reverend Bonnie Gatchel, and you're listening to Complex and Beautiful Bodies, a podcast where we journey together to unlearn the lies told against our bodies and instead to embrace our bodies for the complex and beauty that they are, created by a creator. Good morning and welcome back. This is Complex and Beautiful Bodies. We have with us this morning in the studio um, our Director of Education, Wesley Augustine, who's going to help interview, and Jasmine Grace, who is a survivor of trafficking here in the United States. Um, She's published a book, The Diary of Jasmine Grace. You can find it on Amazon. Um, And she also has a blog. In addition to writing and keeping blogs, she's a mother of five. um, And she also runs her own ministry, Jasmine Grace Ministries. Outreach. Outreach. Jasmine Grace Outreach, formerly Bags of Hope. And I actually will, I will leave that to her to tell you more about in just a little bit. Um, So we're going to kick it off. I'll kick it off by just rolling us right into that. What are you currently doing, Jasmine, and why do you do it? Yeah, what am I currently doing (laughs) besides keeping um, five children alive and well, (laughs) homeschooling, um, driving a minivan, crazy things, right? Mom life. Um, I live in New Hampshire now, but formerly, you know, from Massachusetts, the North Shore area. Um, I run a small nonprofit ministry, like we said, Jasmine Grace Outreach. I have one um, employee with about four or five other survivors that um, we've walked alongside over the years who now have become survivor leaders. We've helped them professionally develop and they do lots of speaking engagements around New England. They also mentor a lot of the women that we're meeting coming out of addiction and the commercial sex trade. We give out the bags right? Bags of hope. They're um, bags filled with toiletries. We give out over a thousand bags a year. And the reason we give out so many is because so many wonderful people donate all the items that go in the bags, which is an amazing thing. We love um, watching the community and people get involved in donation drives and filling the bags together as a family, writing encouraging note cards. So that's really great part of the outreach that we do. We also run groups. We run eight to 10 week groups, recovery support groups, helping women who are in jail, domestic mm-hmm. violence situations, um, drug recovery programs, self-identify, right? Cause so many women who are in those situations have the survivor story, but they don't know it. And so once we do these groups and we talk about what prostitution is and trafficking and the commercial sex trade in general, a lot of these women can start connecting the dots. And once they hear someone else's story, the light bulb goes on and they realize they're a survivor too. And then the healing begins because for so long we're stuck in that shame. We're stuck in the cycle of addiction and homelessness and back out into prostitution. And it just goes on and on. And so we like to come in there and help you know, stop that cycle. And then if the woman wants, um, we can mentor them, right? So then they become part of our organization and they get a mentor and we walk alongside them, helping them and empowering them to rebuild their lives. And it just makes such a difference when you're a survivor 
or new, you know, newly realizing you're a survivor and connecting with someone who's been through it. Because, you know, it's just an automatic connection. There's no judgment. You feel like you can tell the mentor anything. She gets it. Um, and it just makes so much of a difference. So running the groups, mentoring, doing a lot of um, advocating and speaking around New England and beyond, helping women get into safe houses and programs throughout the states, um, you know, really using different resources and connections we have because there's a limited number of safe houses in New England, especially, you know, we're helping women filling in the gaps, right? So if we find a program for a woman out in Kentucky, how is she going to get there, right? So we'll pay for her plane ticket and so forth. Um, so really just filling in the gaps, supporting and empowering and walking alongside these women. And yeah, my book, um, it's called The Diary of Jasmine Grace. Um, it's all based on my old journal entries from when I was trafficked. I can't believe I managed to save all my notebooks that I would write down the things I was going through and really helps a lot of people who aren't survivors understand the mind of a victim. Um, people have to realize it's like coming out of a cult, right? And we need to be deprogrammed. Um, that brainwashing runs so deep. And then it really helps the people who have gone through it because again, it makes the connections for them and they like, start remembering parts of their story and they can identify. So it's great. So yeah, that's on Amazon. Um, the website is jasminegrace.org. If anyone wants to connect or reach out, they can find me there. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Jasmine. That was, that's amazing. Um, the impact that your organization has on your community, right? And being able to um, influence and um, create awareness and just, shed a light of hope in those areas, right, um, which is what we want to do. So uh, as you just started mentioning, trafficking was something that's a part of your story. And with this in mind, uh, would you share with uh, the listeners today a bit of your story of trafficking? Yeah, sure. Um, like I said, I was, you know, raised in Massachusetts, two parents who are still married to this day, but very dysfunctional, a lot of chaos, um, mental illness, a lot of, um, not my parents, but my, my extended family, lots of addiction, organized crime. And I just really didn't have a chance, right? Um, I didn't have any older siblings that were paying attention or mentoring, you know, no aunts or cousins that were really able to help shepherd me through life. And I was on my own from a young age. I had a brother who was 10 years older than me, but we never really connected. He had struggled with um, trauma. As a young kid, he was abused. So by the time I came around, he wasn't really interested. And my mom, um, again, my mom struggled with mental illness and my dad worked a lot to provide for the family. So I just didn't have that connection. Mm -hmm. I had grandparents though, who were very kind and loving. And I grew up, you know, in a big Italian Catholic family. So I'd go over on the weekends and my nanny and papa would cook macaroni and meatballs and I'd sleep over. She'd take me to church and they were, they were so great. And I think back and I know that their, their love and acceptance really did plant a seed of self-worth in there, mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't enough. You know, um, mm -hmm. I think about the women I work with today who've never had anyone that was loving and kind to them. All they've known was that early abuse. Uh, so it's really hard for them to connect anything with self-worth and love and acceptance when they're trying to recover. But for me, I, you know, I could dig deep and realize someone did love me. You know, I was worthy of something, even if it was very small. But going through life and not having that um, self-esteem and worth, uh, 12, 13, drinking, drugging, partying, doing things that I shouldn't have been doing, experienced sexual violence as a teen, just really set me up on a path to be vulnerable and at risk 
and knew I never wanted to be a prostitute. That was not on my list. I went to vocational high school to be a hairdresser. So I got my license at 18. I worked at a small hair salon, went to community college. I wanted to be a journalist, but I met a guy at a nightclub in my local area who really, um, impressed me very easily by having a lot of money and jewelry and dressing fancy. And before you know it, we got together and, you know, to have that trafficking situation, what do you need? A vulnerable person, <laughs> a sex trafficker and a sex buyer, right? And we're all coming out of a broken system. And he was coming from his own brokenness, selling guns and drugs on the street, knowing that selling women would be a lot more profitable and a lot less risky. I had no idea that this was his motivation or his plan. And over a period of three to six months or so, he would groom me and manipulate me, get me into a relationship with him where I thought he loved me. I thought I could trust him. And long story short, he, you know, really manipulated and brainwashed me into the commercial sex trade. But I believed I always made the choice to do that. I thought I chose to be a prostitute. Yeah. I couldn't yeah. recognize his manipulation. And before I know it, it took um, five years of being under him. Lots of violence. Um, it's kind of like domestic violence, but on steroids, right? Because of the shame you're feeling because of the exploitation, um, being, you know, trafficked throughout New England. And again, you don't have to travel through state lines to be trafficked, but just want to make that clear. Um, you know, you can be trafficked in Boston and not go anywhere outside of that. But, you know, went all over New England, um, tried to escape many, many times, but I couldn't because he'd always come and badger me, manipulate me, um, show up and cry, promise he won't hit me again, threaten me, tell me he'd kill me or my family. And of course, I believed him because he had guns. Um, and time would go on where I finally was able to escape. And what pushed me really to escape for the last time was because I became pregnant with his child. And sadly, um, he forced me to terminate the pregnancy. And that was it for me. I knew I had to go because taking a life was just way more than I could handle. At that point, I really realized nothing he promised me was going to come true. It had been, again, five years. I made so much money. He promised me a home and a business and all this stuff. And if I can't have that baby now, I know it's probably never going to happen, right? And so I started planning for my final escape. I started saving money without him noticing. I needed to get my own apartment. And because of God's good grace on my life, I met a sex buyer who owned a small business. And I developed a relationship with him because nothing sexual was happening. He was just paying me a lot of money. We were hanging out. Very awkward and um, strange, but it worked for the time. And I reached out and asked him to lie and say I worked for him to make fake pay stubs. And he did. That was how I got my apartment. And I moved out. Long story short, didn't work out too well. Got involved with drugs because um, I just wanted all that pain to go away, right? It was so traumatizing. And I got involved with drugs and that pushed me back into the commercial sex trade. Now I don't have a pimp, but I have a giant growing drug addiction. And life would unravel, um, be addicted to heroin, homelessness, sleeping on park benches, you know, more trauma, more abuse until I finally got sober in 2007. And the whole story goes from there, only up, um, been 13 years clean and sober and um, met Jesus along the way. Awesome. I love it. Um, I definitely could talk, talk to you all day, of course. And uh, we've been working together for a long time now. Um, but I'm always encouraged by your story. And I'm always, um, I always have more questions. So I what I heard you say earlier when you were talking about the work that you do now is the importance of 
helping women to self-identify and the importance of identifying, oh my goodness, I am a victim. There is a better way of life. Or I was a victim and now I'm a survivor, but it doesn't quite feel like it, you know? Um, and for you to identify that you could do some, like that what he had promised you was not going to happen. So I think, or to say it differently, to identify the lies that you had been told or to start pulling at one of those lies. And I think that's what I hear over and over again from women who were uh, sexually abused by their fathers. They were told, you're ugly, no one's going to want you, don't bother wearing makeup because you can't be less unattractive. And then she won this beauty pageant. And so that moment of winning the beauty pageant said through her whole body and all of her DNA, he's a liar. And somehow that like that broke her free from continuing, right? And, and to save money, she hid money as well to get out of her father's house. I think of Rachel Moran, who's a survivor in Ireland, and she realized that she could write stories and get paid for it. And that was a breaking free of her lies because she got paid for something she enjoyed doing versus having sex, right, or being raped for profit. And so I also hear from you this lie that you had believed for all the good reasons, for all the right reasons. Who doesn't want a man who loves them and have a family and all that? But you realize that moment that he forced you to have an abortion, um, all of a sudden the lies began to unravel. So I guess I say that as my, my question to you is, if you were to pick out one or two myths, just said very directly so that the listeners could hear you, one or two myths about prostitution or about women in prostitution, what would they be? Yeah, I mean, first, the first myth is that women choose to be in prostitution, um, which we know is just a lie. Um, women don't necessarily choose that. I mean, yeah, are there some small, small, small category of sex workers, and I say that with quotes because that's what they call themselves, that are choosing to be in it? Yes, but I think once they realize that there is a better way <laughs> and they're not um, holding on to that lie, that they'll change their mind. And because the majority of women who are in prostitution don't want to be there, right? And especially children. Um, they do not want to be prostitutes. They do not want to be there. But something unfortunate, um, like you've mentioned before, 80 to 90 percent of women who are in the commercial sex trade or prostitution have been sexually abused as children, right? So that dial's been turned and they're in that life because that's what they think. That's what they think they're supposed to be doing. So it's really a mindset um, and that's a big myth that women in prostitution choose to be there. But when you think of trafficking, you don't think a choice. You think that they're taken, they're kidnapped, they're forced into it. But our culture and society has done such a good job at making us believe prostitution is a choice. Good, really good. Um, I definitely, well, I'm glad that you made those distinctions because I think even in today's society, right, we stripping or now is seen more as empowering versus as um, someone who is in, in a vulnerable place and seeking out to find and seeking out to find some means um, but doing it in a way that's not necessarily should be right like sex shouldn't be work 
right? Sex should be something that's enjoyed, but not necessarily have to be worked in order to make a living. Um, so I really appreciate you defining those um, and to our listeners about these myths that get brought up um, and combating them. I did want to ask a follow-up question. When you were talking about a little bit about your story and talking about um, how you didn't have family, like people around you, right? Like a village around you to be able to help, to guide you and help you and mentor you. So now you're a mother of five kids. Um, I want to just ask uh, for, I don't know how to phrase this, but for you, how how is that now important for you as a mother with your kids? Um, having that village, having that um, mentorship, or even also, right, do they, this is also another question, but do they know your story too as well? Um, yeah, just speak on that. <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's a big thing. My story has definitely impacted the way I do life, never mind parenting. Um, it also impacts my marriage in really hard ways because it's been a really struggle early on to be married. Very, very hard and a lot of um, healing and all that has had to happen. But specifically with my children, um, they do know my story. My kids, um, at the beginning, they were very young. So we're a blended family. My two older kids are my husband, so they're 17 and 14. But my kids are, are the younger ones. And when they were really small is when I started the Bags of Hope. And in order to help them get involved, because my faith plays a big role in my recovery, I also wanted them to learn about it, but I just didn't want to teach them like a Sunday school lesson, right? I wanted them to be involved and let them know, okay, so this is what God's done in my life, right? Guys, I, I was, you know, an addict. I was homeless. Um, I was in a bad relationship. I was, you know, not treated right. This wasn't a good thing for me. But now I'm sober and look what God's done in my life. I wanted to like flip it, right? Like see how mom is today and all the things that I'm doing. So they'd help me make the bags. They'd help me hand them out. And they loved it. You know, they loved helping women. They loved helping making the bags. And then as they got older, once the book came out, they started to think I was famous, which was really funny. Um, they came to the, we had like a book signing event and they're there and lots of people came and just, just for them to see me in that light was pretty cool. Um, I've traveled a lot around, you know, the States with them as I do a lot of speaking events. So as I think it's really empowering for my daughters to see me out there, um, you know, again, sharing and interacting with people and working and really turning um, that bad stuff that happened to me in for something for, that's for good now. Now that my daughter is getting older, she's asking more specific questions and I'm answering them as appropriately as I can. Um, but the older ones are really, really educated on it and they probably can't get away with much for me. And that's kind of the, the problem for them, but it's good for me because there's nothing they're gonna get by me, right? Been there, done that, you know, raised on the streets. And the thing is these kids today are finding all their information out on the internet. So it's a bit different, which is kind of frustrating in so many ways and you have to really be careful. But I'm educating them, I'm limiting them with the technology you know, of course, all types of ways that I'm trying to empower and educate them. They have mentors, they have good people in their life, spiritual mentors, good friends, and just really surrounded because it does, it takes a village and you can't do this on your own. And if you leave your kid to the public school system and a device, you never know <laughs> what they are learning. So we have to be aware and we have to be having conversations and we can't just stick our head in the sand because unfortunately that's what my my mom, my parents did over the years. And that's bad. 
Great. So now, uh, now I have like three more follow-up questions, which we won't be able to get to. I'm just picking right now a couple. Um, one, so I'm going to ask both of them at the same time so that you know them and then you can maybe remind me and we can get back to them. But one is backing up a little bit. So we asked Audrey Morrissey this as well, and I heard it in your story, um, and I heard it as the work that you do, helping women self-identify. And a lot of times when people are new to this conversation or new to really understanding what trafficking is, that trafficking is not people tied to radiators and locked in basements. Sometimes that happens, right? But it is a lot of mind games and manipulation and using of shame. So often people will say to me, oh, it's great you rescue women from strip clubs or how many women have you rescued? And I have to help them understand I, I don't. So why is that harming? Why is the term rescue or the idea of me rescuing women from strip clubs or me rescuing women from trafficking? Why is that a bad thing? Um, yes. Yeah. Um, the word rescue just insinuates power, right? So if I, if I can rescue, then I must have authority. I must have power. I must be some kind of like superhuman that can rescue. Mm -hmm. And while, you know, I see this with my son, um, he's a rescuer by nature, right? If he sees something happening to his little sister, he'll run over there and he, I'm going to rescue you, you know, and that's that mentality, which is great for him. Um, but used in this term, you know, in this movement, the anti-trafficking movement, we don't want to rescue women, right? Because then that makes us the hero and they're the poor victim who needs saving. Yes. Do they need saving and do they need redemption? And that comes through Jesus Christ alone, right? Not through a mere human. Um, so I can most certainly empower them and support them and serve them and lead them, you know, down a better path to make good choices, but I can't tell them what choices to make. You know, I may have in my mind all the options that I think this woman should do, but she's not going to, you know, take my direction because if she does, then I'm just like her pimp, right? So we want to lay them all out, lay out the choices. These are the, the, the options that you have, you know, what's going to work for you. And she's going to tell me her plan. And you know what? Her plan may work. It may not. But that's okay. We're going to walk alongside her. And that's more of that power dynamic, right? I'm not going to come in and swoop in and rescue. I'm going to walk alongside and support. Because, you know, recovery is really hard and messy. <laughs> and it does not happen in a linear, you know, straight line. It's very up and down and roller coastery. I can't tell you how many women have gone back to situations mm -hmm. after we've helped them exit. Mm -hmm. Um or we've even had women overdose and die, which is totally heartbreaking, but you can only do so much, right? You have to give them the tools and you got to empower them to, for them to make the right choices for what's going to work. Mm -hmm. And I am with you 100% in the work that we do, similar situations. I, I mean, I even flew with a woman all the way to somewhere in North Carolina so that she could get to a safe house because she had never flown before. And she was able to somehow get cash money and take the Greyhound all the way back to Boston 30 days later. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is not accusatory. This is, I would just love for you to help our listeners understand why do it? Why, you know what I mean? If these are our outcomes, <laughs> yep. um, why do it? Cause you never know that time might stick. Right. And, I'll tell you, throughout my whole trafficking experience, there were people along the way 
who put tools in my toolbox. So when I was finally ready to exit, I was able to use that stuff. But if no one had ever helped me, I would have had nothing to go on. So all we do is plant the seeds, okay? I may plant, you may water, and what God does the growing, <laughs> right? And that's the process. That's all we're in charge of. I love that. God does the growing. Yeah, he does. So <laughs> um, so we are almost out of time. So I'm just going to ask you one last question, Jasmine. And this is just um, about hope. And what does that word mean for you? That's a good one. I mean, hope can mean so much, but I mean, we named it bags of hope because literally we were filling these bags with toiletries and going to meet women out on the streets. I mean, this one woman I met on the street, I'll tell you, it was clear she needed a bag, right? She's walking on the streets of Lynn. It's summertime. She has two different flip-flops on. She's barely dressed, you know, her like tank tops hanging off, her, her pocketbook is open, she's got stuff falling out, she's on a cell phone screaming at somebody, her hair looks like, you know, it hadn't been washed in days, and she's clenching a fistful of money, okay, and I see her, and I know clearly, I gotta give this girl a bag, so I pull up to her, jump out of my minivan, uh, you know, walk briskly over to her, tap her on the shoulder, and say, hey, and she turns around and I say, I just want to hand you this bag. And she looks in it and she starts to weep. Mm. And she says, how did you know I needed this today? Mm. And I said, listen, I don't know, but I've been there, been on the streets. You know, I, I've been prostituted. I've been on drugs, everything. And I want to let you know there's a better way. There's hope, mm. <laughs> right? You don't have to live like this. And I just want to let you know I love you. And there's some resources in this bag if you want to call if you need help, but you don't have to live like this. It's not what you were created for. And just give her a hug and tell her I love her and she's on her way. I don't know if that girl ever made it into treatment or not, but that's what hope looks like. Meeting someone right where they're at in the darkness and just offering them a better way. That is a very powerful story. And I'm glad that we ended with that. This is Jasmine Grace, jasminegrace.org. You can look for her book on Amazon or go right to her right to her website. Um, her ministry is Jasmine Grace Outreach, which is a beautiful ministry, reaching women and connecting them to the resources they need uh, to take the next step. And maybe the next step is to freedom, or maybe the next step is to a moment of hope. But we are so glad that you would be with us this morning. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Thank you for joining us for Complex and Beautiful Bodies, a podcast of Root One Media. To find out more of the work that we're doing or how to get involved, you can find Root One Ministry on Facebook or on our website, lovedbyroot1.org. I'm Reverend Bonnie Gatchel, sending you off with tons of hope and blessing. Thanks. Bye.